Zephaniah 3, Zephaniah 3. I was waking up this morning and you know it's kind of, it's, we're at that point now where it's dark enough outside where when I wake up I can't tell if it's like five minutes before my alarm goes off or five hours before my alarm goes off. So I don't want to, I don't want to like rouse myself too much because I want to stay asleep if I can. But I, I don't know about you, if I go back to sleep just a few minutes before my alarm goes off, I, I dream the weirdest dreams, which this morning included that Zach and I were ball dance part, ball, ballroom dance partners. Uh, <laughs> Zach was very good and was kind of, I was not, which is not surprising. And um, uh, it, was a, it was a weird thing. Um, and I kind of feel a little awkward that I told you that just now. So anyway, um, so I, I'm reaching over to find the alarm. It's about this big, this high, it's this little plastic thing. And I'm reaching over on my nightstand and I know what it looks, I know what it looks like, I can't see it's dark, but I know how it, what it's shaped like. So I'm, I'm reaching over there and I'm feeling for it. And I thought to myself, this is like how a lot of us experience Christmas. A lot of us experience Christmas in this kind of like, I'm reaching to find something and I can't find it. Now, for most of us, that happens pretty easy because Christmas was really fun when we were kids. And then this thing happens at about 18 where it's like, I don't know if I have a present to look forward to other than like clothes, right? Um, I, I, I mean, I, I'm getting clothes this year and I'm actually very excited about it, but something changes when you're not like hoping for like a Nintendo 64, right? Or the Sega Dreamcast, which is what I got and found without my parents knowing. And, and so, and, and even at a deeper level, Christmas maybe last year felt different for some of us than it feels this year. Something is missing this year that was there last year, or we're carrying something into this year that wasn't there before. So we're carrying grief, we're carrying disappointment, or we're feeling grief because um, something is missing. And so we're kind of reaching over to, to grab this Christmas. Even if we think about the words that we use to describe Christmas, on the Advent wreath, the words that each candle represents are words like hope and joy and peace and love. And this Christmas, even though we're reaching for it, it's kind of hard to find hope. We, feel, we don't feel that hopeful. We don't feel that peaceful. We certainly don't feel joyful. And love is a complicated thing when politics come up around the dinner table tomorrow, right? Uh, love is a complicated thing when you're with your family for a whole day. Right, and, uh, and so how do, what does it look like for us to reach for Christmas when those are the words? So what I wanted to find was a different, was a different vocabulary for Christmas. I wanted to see if we could find other words that scripture gives us to kind of shape our expectations for Christmas. And in a different sense, we're reading from the prophet Zephaniah. Zephaniah is one of the prophets who from the past see the coming of Jesus. And like me reaching onto my night table, my nightstand, he kind of knows the shape of what's happening, but he can't see it. In retrospect, we see how the words of Zephaniah apply to Jesus, but he's foretelling the coming of Jesus in this short little prophecy. He's one of the minor prophets. Minor prophets, um, there's 12 of them because their books are shorter. Major prophets because their books are very, 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 very long and very confusing. For example, Ezekiel is commanded by God to eat poop. Okay, so that's the Bible. I didn't write it and it's weird. So in this little, in this little prophecy that Zechariah is writing, I want us to look at just four verses out of chapter three to see if we can't find a different vocabulary for our Christmas. 
uh, a different vocabulary that when we reach for something and don't find it, still helps us kind of unwrap the greatest gift. And, and those verses are in chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Now, they're not going to be on the screen, so I'll be reading them a couple times. And I'm actually reading out of the English Standard Version, Bible nerds in the room. I normally preach out of the New Living. Today, I'm preaching out of the English Standard because I think it got to the heart of it better. And it says this in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 14. It says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem, because the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love, and he will exalt over you with loud singing. Now, Zephaniah's words sound familiar. They sound familiar. Singing and rejoicing and shouting and exalting is kind of what is at the heart of Christmas. Joy to the world, the Lord is come, right? The angels broke open the sky in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke and say to these shepherds, behold, I bring you good news that is for great joy of all people. Um, and so there's something of an overlap here. Like, like those angels that first Christmas, Zephaniah is calling for praise and, and, and joy of the highest degree. At the sound of our praise, the heavens will shake and the earth will move, right? He's calling for praise at the highest possible degree for, for this reason. God is with us. Twice, twice in these four verses, Zephaniah says, God is in your midst. The Lord is is in your midst. And he uses the capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the Lord, the personal name of God, Yahweh, is in your midst, he says. John Wesley, who founded the movement that we now call Methodism, and it's a, a tribe to which we're connected, John Wesley wrote, the best thing of all is God with us. John Wesley looked at the whole of scripture and said, the best thing of all is God with us. And that's exactly what Zephaniah is getting to. He says that shouting and exulting and singing and rejoicing are called for, for, for basically three reasons in this text. And the first one is that God in our midst means mercy. God in our midst means mercy. Zechariah, not Zechariah, that's another guy. Zephaniah tells us that the coming of the Lord is not about anger or wrath. Do you remember in Harry Potter when Ron Weasley gets a howler? Okay, so the red letter comes flying into the dining hall and it kind of turns into a mouth with very sharp teeth and it kind of yells at him, right? It's his mother's voice berating him in front of the whole dining hall for, I don't know, he did something stupid. Um, I can't really remember what it was. And some of us think that Jesus coming to us is like a howler. They stole the car. Thank you, Zach. Yes, they stole that car. And so uh, that's, that's perfect. And so Mrs. Weasley's voice is in the dining room yelling at them, right? And we think Jesus coming to us is like a howler. That Jesus got all up in here so that he could see with his own eyes just how terrible we were. That he could see just with his own eyes just how bad we are. Instead, though, that's our imagination and our imaginations are wrong. The text says something else. It says the Lord comes into our midst with a different kind of message. And it says it uh, in verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. 
the Lord has taken away, or the verdict, the Lord has taken the judgments or verdicts against you, and he has cleared away your enemies. The coming of the Lord, the coming of the King Jesus, even in a manger, that little baby, is an arrival in which the judgments against us are canceled and our enemies are cleared away. Now, two things, our judgments are canceled, our enemies are cleared away. And we are very interested in uh, our enemies are cleared away, right? Because many times in our life, we are aware of our enemies and we are very excited that they are taken away from us. Scripture says that we have an enemy, his name Satan, he has angels, dark angels, which he commands and concerning us, and, and, and he is trying to get in our way. So we like the idea, okay, the enemies have no power over us. What we struggle with more, what we have a harder time with, is, is this idea of judgment. Because if there is a judgment against us or a verdict against us, it means that we've done something to deserve it. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each has turned to his own path. We have this thing in our lives called sin which stands against us. There is a record of wrongdoing attached to us. And yet, the coming of Jesus isn't to enact a verdict. The, the coming of Jesus is to clear the verdict away. The coming of Jesus isn't the jury moving into town. The coming of Jesus, his life and his death and, a resurre and resurrection are actually a verdict of not guilty. Instead of bringing judgment, instead of bringing judgment, Jesus brings mercy. Jesus brings mercy. Jesus said, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the whole world might be saved through me. And there's repentance involved. There is an owning of our failures. And yet in the eyes of Jesus, our failures are not fatal. And bonus, our enemy, which would use our failures to limit us, has been put to what Paul calls in Colossians, open shame by the cross. He made a fool out of our enemy in his life and death and resurrection. Jesus in our midst does not mean he is here to yell at us. Do you remember when you were taking a test in school and the teacher would kind of walk up and down the aisles just to watch what you were doing? When I was taking math classes, the teacher might as well have just looked over the shoulder and been like, wrong, 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 you're stupid, wrong, um, and written an F on the top of the paper. And we again, that's what Jesus has come to do. And yet what, Paul, what, what Zephaniah is saying to us is that his coming means mercy. His coming means that the judgments against you and I are failure in our mistake, uh, the ways that we've kind of wandered wrongly, that those are not fatal. And instead of being cleared away, that he is clear away our enemies. God in our midst means that we can experience the mercy of God. God in our midst means that we know the mercy of God, and God in our midst also means courage. Zephaniah says, the king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, let not your hands grow weak. You shall never again fear evil. God in our midst means that we do not need to live with fear because he is in our midst as king. In the Roman Empire, if you were a Roman citizen, you could walk from one end of the empire to the other without any fear of being harassed. Because if you were a Roman citizen and somebody messed with you, the whole weight of the Roman Empire came down on your head. Because the sphere of influence, the protective covering of the Roman Empire was so secure and so strong that people in the Roman Empire had no fear of traveling from one end 
to the other. And if you will, the coming of Jesus is the inbreaking of God's kingdom into this world such that God's protective covering over his people means that we need not fear evil. That doesn't mean we stop fearing. It just means that we don't have to. There's a, there's a subtle difference. There's a subtle difference between I choose to continue to live in fear versus I am forced to live in fear. The kingdom of God is at hand is what Jesus would say, and that meant the kingdom of God had invaded the world in such a way that the kingdom of darkness was pushed back. We don't need to fear anymore. We don't need to fear anymore. And and, and Zephaniah says, fear not, let not your hands grow weak. Fear makes our hands grow weak. Fear stops us from doing the right thing. Fear stops us from taking the step out. Fear is what limits us. Fear is what makes our hands grow weak. And yet with the protective covering of Jesus, which kind of entered into the world that night in Bethlehem, we are now set free from fear and we can now live courageously. And let me tell you why this is good news is because following Jesus requires consistent courage. Following Jesus requires consistent courage. What we do as a community, and a lot of you are new to our community, a lot of you are new to Jesus, there is no point of reference for what happens here and your day-to-day living, right? You're going to have dinner with your family tonight or tomorrow, and there's going to be whole parts of your life that have broken in since last Christmas that they don't understand. They don't understand why you would spend your time the way They don't understand why you're going to Bible studies, why you're coming to church on Sunday mornings, why you're spending New Year's Eve at our house. They don't understand that there's no point of reference for that. It takes courage to look that in the face and not fight about it or yell about it, but it takes courage to kind of, and conviction to kind of live into that place. It takes courage and conviction to follow a Jesus who just when we think has figured, we figured it out, just when we think it's settled down, that he calls us deeper. Just when we think, hey, I've matured. Hey, just when we think I've beat that down, Jesus taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, there's this whole other thing we're gonna start having a conversation about. It takes courage to kick addiction. It takes courage uh, to, to, to keep showing up. It takes remarkable courage to follow Jesus. And what we find is that the minute we say yes to this Jesus, there is this well of courage that springs up in us which we tap into as we follow him, as we follow him in the midst of some of life's darkest, most confusing and pressing questions. It takes courage to keep showing up with Jesus. And yet what we find is that just as Christ was born into the world, when new life is born in us, there's this courage that was not there before. The coming of Jesus means mercy. The coming of Jesus means courage to walk through fire. The coming of Jesus means love, it does. The coming of Jesus in our midst means love. Look at verse, chapter, chapter three, verse 17, one of my favorite verses of scripture. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The Lord is in our midst, and he is in our midst as a warrior. Now, think about Jesus. What we talk about Jesus is like lowly infant, so tender and mild, right? Like little baby Jesus, so tiny, you don't even know a word yet, right? 
like just want to squeeze his cheeks, baby Jesus, and he's so precious, and every little picture of him has that like light circle, right, around him, and he's so tiny, and yet from the very moment of his birth, Jesus shows up as a warrior. Another translation says, Yahweh, your God, is among, is among you a warrior who saves. When Jesus shows up in our midst, he arrives as a warrior, and from the very moment of his birth, he was a mighty warrior. And while this language strikes us as odd, because again, we want to use this sentimental, cutesy language at Christmas, hear my words today, Jesus is among us as a warrior, and he arrives in our midst entirely ready for battle. He arrives in our midst ready for battle, poised for victory, ready to go, but look at his weapons. It says he will rejoice over you with gladness. It says he will quiet you or calm you, calm you with his love. He will exalt or rejoice over you with loud singing. I can only think of this particular instance in scripture where it talks about God singing. And when God sings, he sings about you and he sings over you. When Jesus arrives in our midst, he arrives as a warrior ready for battle and remarkably his weapon is love. All of the Jews in Israel at this time overlooked Jesus because he was not the kind of warrior they thought he would be. They expected Jesus to come as a warrior with a sword in his hand, armed to the teeth, ready to take on Rome, ready to take on the world. But instead of fighting like the world, Jesus had a different battle to fight first, and the battle was for every square inch of your heart and mine. The battle was for every square centimeter of your soul. Jesus arrives as a mighty warrior, but he doesn't come with a sword, he comes with a song. His armor isn't steel, it's quiet strength, and his strategy for victory isn't military, but spiritual. It is for unending joy. And, and here's what I, I, I think we need to know as a community this, this Christmas, Jesus fights for you. Jesus has not come as a warrior to fight with you. He has come as a warrior to fight for you. Zephaniah says he is a warrior here to save. Our fear is that when we meet God, he will be the howler. He will be that teacher, but he is not here to fight with you. He is here to fight for you. Now, let's be clear about something. There are moments when Jesus fighting for you feels a lot like he's fighting with you. Okay? When Jesus decides to get serious about cutting a piece of your life that shouldn't be there out, it feels like a fight with you. When you are walking through a dark moment of deep questions, that feels like some questions that feels like God is fighting with you. When you pray and God does not respond the way you want to, it feels like God is fighting with you. But even if it feels like God is fighting with you, he is fighting for you. He will not stop, hear me, Jesus will not stop until every square inch of your heart is his. And just when you think he's taken all the territory he can take, just when you think that, that he's gone as far as he's going to go, surprise, he calls us deeper still, and he calls us deeper still, and the challenge increases, and the invitation increases, and he keeps going. Listen, the battle will not stop until heaven. The minute the battle for your soul ends is the minute you see Jesus face to face. Not before, not after. This is not, this is not a moment where he gets 80% of it done and then you get to go on spiritual vacation for the rest of your life. Until the very moment you take your last breath, Jesus is fighting for you. 
And the, and the truth of it is that, that the warfare becomes more precise the longer you follow Jesus. The, the longer you follow Jesus, the more laser-targeted his work becomes. And I don't like using a lot of like war imagery, but it's almost like the longer you follow Jesus, he's now using like laser-guided predator drones, right? Because when he first starts the work, everything needs renovated. Everything needs his attention. But as he keeps moving, it gets more focused and more focused and more focused until all of a sudden this area where you're conversing with Jesus is very specific and very ongoing. This is, this is the work of spiritual formation. This is the work of following Jesus. This is why it requires courage because to keep showing up with Jesus as he fights for your soul and you participate in that fight with him, that takes courage. This is why Jesus shows up with mercy because as he continues to fight for our soul, as he continues to dig in there and get all up in your face, he's not ticked, he's not pissed, he's not upset, but he in his love and mercy and grace with, with a quietness of heart, with, with a song coming out of his mouth, with, with armed with love, he is entering into the battle more and more and more so that all of you belongs to him. At Christmas, Jesus comes not for some of us, and by some of us I don't mean numerically, not for an, a little part of each of us, he wants all of us. Every day, Jesus is fighting for you. Now hear me on this. The good news is that every day, Jesus is fighting for your healing. Every day, Jesus is fighting in an arena of the questions that you have for him. Jesus fights in the arena of your uncertainty. Jesus fights in the arena of your anxiety. Jesus fights in the arena of your disappointment. Jesus fights in the arena of your apathy. And the battle isn't yours, it's his and yet one day we keep waking up and finding that Jesus has taken more territory. And you know what this is like. You know what this is like, because I, I love this community because I'm watching it happen all the time. All of a sudden somebody like responds in a way they wouldn't normally have responded and they're like, oh, that was weird. Like you sense the weirdness in yourself when you follow Jesus. Do you know what I'm saying? Because all of a sudden these things that you would have done before, uh, you, you, you're not doing and you're doing something different and you find that strange. And guys, even the parts of you that you have viewed as secure and buttoned down and not needing Jesus' attention, five bucks on the table right now, that's target number one for Jesus in 2018. I was reading a book by a guy named Athanasius. Athanasius, um, <clears throat> Athanasius Contramundum. Athanasius was the only person in the known world at the time, this is about 300 AD, who was still insisting that Jesus was entirely divine and entirely human. At 300 AD, almost everything that we know about what it means to who Jesus is fell apart. Uh, a guy named Arius was insisting there was a time when he was not, that Jesus was begotten and made. And, and, and so, there's this battle going on and Athanasius is the only one confessing what you and I know to be true. In fact, in 325 at the Council of Nicaea where Athanasius and Arius went toe to toe, a guy named Saint Nicholas walked up to Arius and punched him square in the mouth. So, you know, don't worry about coal guys, worry about heresy, you know what I'm saying? Athanasius writes a little book called On the Incarnation and he says this, it was our sorry case that caused the word to come down. 
our transgression that called out his love for us so that he made haste to help us and appear among us. It was our sorry case that caused the word to come down, our transgression that called out his love for us so that he made haste to help us and to appear among us. Listen, when Jesus comes with his mercy and his love offering us courage, he made haste to get here because He saw our state, he saw our lives, he knows every single detail about you and he makes haste to come because even our failures and even our sin, our transgressions, those do not evoke God's anger, they do not evoke God's apathy, they do not evoke God's boredom, they evoke his love for us. It calls out to him and he responds and love and comes rushing to help us as a warrior ready for action with sure footing, ready to endeavor every single moment on your behalf. And he does it in his mercy. He gives us his own courage so that we can join with him in this work that this little baby that came to us, this little child that we met on that first Christmas Eve, that as we say with our mouth, he is our king and our Lord, that that might be true in our hearts. It was our sorry case that caused the word to come down, that caused Jesus to come down, our transgression that called out his love so that he made haste to help us to appear among us. And let me say this, and then I'm done. Whatever it is that you feel like you need this Christmas. Whatever it is you feel like you are calling out to him for, whether or not it seems like it, Jesus in his mercy is making haste toward you. Jesus, would you make haste to meet us? Would you make haste to interrupt us with your love and grace? Would you make haste to help us see who you are more clearly this Christmas? And God, for the battles that we're fighting right now, the battles with anxiety, with grumpiness, with pride, God, the battles with comfort and greed, God, even the battles that you're fighting that we don't know about, would you be entirely yourself to us? Would you be a warrior? God, may we hear the song that you are singing over us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.